Today we're going to continue our series in divine direction. How many of you need some divine direction? Today. Okay, good. We're going to uh, continue that series. And uh, because I believe that our decisions are vitally important. The decisions we make today determine our course for tomorrow. Okay? The decisions we made in the past have gotten us where we are today, right? How many of you would say you made all of the right decisions? Okay? How many of you would say, hey, if I had it to do over again, I would change some of those? Yeah? Okay. Well, today we're going to find out the process of hearing God and responding to him when it comes time to make those decisions. Now, uh, we've talked about some problems that we have in making decisions, right? One of those problems is, is that there's too many options. Have you ever been frozen at McDonald's not knowing what to buy? Or better yet, El Azteca, you know? They have... They have 17 numbers plus all the other stuff. I mean, you've got to check out all of that stuff before you can make a decision, right? And so we have so many options that many times it just freezes us and we just can't make a decision. Now, there's another reason that we, we can't do that, and it's what I call this pursuit of perfection. Okay? We want everything to be exactly perfect, right? And I think we get a lot of that from social media. You watch people's Instagram accounts and, you know, they have the perfect whatever they are, you know, the perfect meal. You know, I've never figured out quite yet why people have to take pictures of their food to tell you what they ate, you know. But you see the meals that they have and you go, oh, I'd like that. Oh, that looks good. Mm, ah. And you start thinking, you know, and they, they, they show them, you know, and selfies. I don't quite get selfies yet either. You know, but people take pictures, actually take pictures of themselves and post them online so that you can see them. And it seems like the people that do that, you know, they have the perfect body, you know, they have the perfect smile. Their hair is always perfect. And you just go, wow, you know, there's this perfection out there. And, and if I don't make decisions that get me there, you know, boy, I'm in trouble. And so we get frozen trying to achieve this ideal of perfection. I'm going to give you a third reason I think that people have trouble making decisions, and that is we overprogram our kids. Have you noticed that? I remember when I was a kid, we used to do something that is really remarkable today. We used to play outside. <laughs> yeah, well, we never played by ourselves. I mean, we had friends. I mean, and, and it was interesting because, you know, how, how do you decide what you're going to do? We used to do this thing called King of the Hill. And, you know, you find a hill somewhere, and the biggest kid would get on top of it, and he would push everybody off, you know, push them down, and many times hurt them, and we would call that fun. You know? Now, you know, and in our neighborhood, there were hundreds of kids, it seemed like, and we always played outside. We'd play football, we'd play baseball, we'd play home run derby, we would do all this stuff. And, and the beauty of playing outside was that you had to learn to make decisions, because who made the decisions on what you were going to play? Usually the older kids. And I loved it when I got to that older kid status, you know, and I could kind of decide. But I learned early on in life that if you make some decisions, like when you're picking teams, we never picked teams. We just assigned people to teams. Okay, you take them, then, yeah, okay, we're going to divide this up. And when I got to be the decision maker, I said, man, I'm going to win every game. I'm taking all the best players for me. You know, and so we did. And I found that pretty soon the younger kids and the poorer players, pretty soon they were doing something else. I had to make some decisions at that point. And I had to say, okay, well, we'll take these guys, even though I don't want them. And you take those guys, even though you don't want them. And we'll kind of even up the teams so that we can play ball. 
And we would play baseball. I mean, we played baseball all the time. There was a chicken ranch, you know, egg ranch that was right around outside of our little neighborhood there. And they had this big field. And for some reason, we thought we could go over to that big field and build a baseball diamond. And we did. I mean, we kind of smoothed it all out and stuff. And it was okay with the owners. And we smoothed it all out. And we were playing out there. And the kids across the street, the Barney kids, you know, the Barney kids, they were, there were three of them. And the older brother, he was just too big to play ball. He was just, when I say big, he was big. And uh, he was too big to play ball. But the two younger, Doug and I forget what the younger kid's name was, but they would always play. And they were always rivals. And so they couldn't play on the same team because they would just punch each other out. And I remember the younger Barney kid was on my, my team and his brother was playing left field. And his brother's name was Doug. He was my age. And the younger Barney kid's up to bat. And, and you know, Doug's just razzing him, just razzing him. Thinking, oh, man. And I'm thinking, man, we need to make a decision here because things are about to get out of hand. And before I could make any decision at all, the younger Barney kid took a baseball bat and he heaved it into left field. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's a waste. And it, whoo, 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 and you can hear it. It's like a helicopter landing. Whoo, 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 whoo. Man, and it hit his brother in the leg. No, he aimed for his head. But, uh, but it hit him, and I thought, oh, we're going to have to make some new rules. <laughs> you can't throw bats into the outfield. Hello. And so, you know, you learn to make decisions as kids. Now, here's what's happening today. Kids don't make decisions anymore. They get programmed by their parents. Okay, you're going to play soccer, you're going to play baseball, you're going to do whatever, and you're going to go gymnastics, and you're going to go here, you're going to go there, and you don't decide anything, but you just do everything. And we think we're providing our kids this great opportunity, but many times we rob them of the opportunity to make decisions. So if you've been over-programmed, you might be believing right now, boy, I just don't know how to make decisions. And I told you about my friends last week whose kids couldn't go anywhere and make any decisions without checking in with mom. And so it it can stifle kids. So today we want to be talking about that. In fact, I I read in Forbes magazine online uh, this idea about career paralysis. Have Have you ever known about that? Okay. It in, in our generation, my generation, it, it, you were encouraged to get an education and then get a job. Okay, Get an education, get a job. Now, those of you who are in my generation, how many of you have ever had a job that you really didn't like all that much? <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, we, we did that. But now you know what we did for our kids? We told our kids, you don't have to settle for that. You find a job that you're passionate about. Let You find a job you're fulfilled in. You find a job that you're good at, and you pursue that with all of your heart. Well, this article on career paralysis said to the effect that because of that, people today are making their decisions about career based on three things. Number one, something you love. Okay, And if it's not something you love, you discount it. Poop. That's no good. Number two, something that makes a difference. You're giving back to the community. You're giving back to the world. You're, you're building into people. So if, it's, if you, got a, you have a job that doesn't do that, it's off the list. And number three, something that makes you a lot of money. If it doesn't have that, do nothing. Now, kids are programmed that way now to say, okay, I need those three things. And when I don't have those three things, you know what they do? They move home. 
<laughs> they move home. And so it's kind of a, the, uh, uh, you know, we've gone from one extreme where you, you get an education, you get a job. Now you need to be fulfilled. You need to love your job. You need to make a lot of money. You need to da-da-da-da-da. And so kids are not satisfied today with taking something that's not the absolute best. And it stifles their ability to make decisions. So how do we become more decisive? I've got four things here for you today that will help you do that. But before we delve into that, let me read to you a passage of Scripture found in Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 22 through 24. Now, we studied this a few weeks ago in our small group, and I was really, uh, you know, I was really grabbed by it. Uh, It's always been one of those passages of Scripture that kind of gets my attention. But today I want to read it to you. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, this is the Apostle Paul talking. He's compelled by the Spirit. He's going to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And here's the task. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Okay, from this passage of Scripture, we're going to find four things here that will help us to be more decisive and more connected to God and following his leadership. Number one, and you'll find it right there in the first little bit of the passage, it's the Spirit's prompting. I don't know if you've ever sensed the Spirit's prompting. I, I believe that if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have experienced the Spirit's prompting more than once. However, we always ask the question, well, was that the Spirit of God Was it my selfishness? Was it the devil? And because of all of those things that we can't really answer those questions many times, we just get frozen into what? Inaction. We do nothing. And many times we would rather do nothing than do something and fail. Okay? Do something that's wrong. So it's it's safer for me to do nothing. Now, here's a great time for me to mention once again that God cannot steer a parked car. Okay? It doesn't matter. If your car is parked, he cannot steer you. He cannot get you to your destination. Your job is to press on the accelerator, start moving in life. And if you're moving in the wrong direction and you have some sensitivity to the Holy Spirit of God, he will then redirect you. Okay, so sometimes it's better to be moving in the wrong direction so God can turn you around. But if you're parked at the curb, it's hard for him to get you to move because you're frozen into inactivity, fearful that you're going to make the wrong decision. Now, in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, the very first part of it, it says, and now compelled by the spirit. Now, that phrase compelled by the spirit is the Greek phrase deo honuma, deo honuma. And in this passage, and in this, this phrase, it has this, this picture of being bound by a cord around your wrists and being pulled in a direction. Deohonuma. Now, how many of you have ever felt kind of compelled to move in a direction and been fearful to do it? Yeah. I'm going to suggest to you today that when you experience that deohonuma experience, move. Move. You don't know where to go. You don't know, may not know what to do. Now, notice the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and I've been warned, but I don't know really what lies before me. We're big about having the destination before we begin the journey, but when, when we really examine this, following God is really what? A one-step-at-a-time approach, and we're going to talk about that more. Now, 
Um, I want you to learn to walk um, and, and be pulled by that cord. How many of you have ever gone to the mall? Everybody's gone to the mall, right? What is the one store that many of you avoid? <laughs> Victoria's Secret. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, and I have to say, there are times where Cindy will get lotion and stuff. I have to wait outside. And in fact, I don't even lurk outside. I have to go down a little ways and, because I don't want people to think I'm lurking outside Victoria's Secret. You know, that's just kind of weird. But Rob, thank you. Uh, yeah, we avoid that. I avoid Cinnabon. You know? Can you, can, and I'm going to ask you, can you avoid Cinnabon? No, because as you're walking through the mall, you're walking through the mall, all of a sudden... Man, you get a waft of that cinnamon and oh, that bakery goods. And, and pretty soon you have a Deo Honuma moment and you're compelled. You're being drawn. It's like a magnet and you want to go in there. That's what the Spirit of God is like. There are times where you will have an experience where you feel, I need to go over here. I need to do something here. I need to talk to this person. I need to be available for this or for that. And that's a Deo Honuma moment that you need to experience. Don't deny it. Follow it and see where it leads you because God doesn't usually give you the destination before you begin the journey. So take your step toward that. Start doing that Deo Honuma moment. Now, for some of you, it might be uh, the Deo Honuma moment. might be, I need to get involved in a life group. I need to get involved in a small group that meets during the week. That might be your Deo Honuma moment. God might be drawing you to that. In fact, our group has grown pretty tremendously uh, on Tuesday nights. Uh, we had, the other night, we had 18 people. It's, almost, it's not a small group anymore. And we need to have another group. That might be your Deo Honuma moment that God's saying, hey, I need you to step up and provide some leadership for a new group. Okay? It might be your Deo Honuma moment when God says, I want you to become a follower of me. I want you to become a follower of me. And once you become a follower of me, you might have another Deo Honuma moment when he says, hey, I want to draw you in. I want you to be baptized. I want you to show the world that you're going to be a follower of mine. Now, I want you to know that, that Cindy and I are getting ready to move, and we're getting ready to move back into the house that we used to live in. And you know what's at that house? A swimming pool. Now, you know the beauty of a swimming pool is what? We get to have baptism. Yeah. We have baptism barbecues. And after all, as Rob would say, it's baptism season. So... So that might be your next Deo Honuma moment to be baptized, to become a, a, a signify and cement the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It might be a Deo Honuma moment when you say, you know, God's leading me to start a business that will be run and bring glory and honor to him. You know, it could be any kind of business. And it could be for the sake of employing people that need to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so that Deo Honuma moment is not so that you can be provided for, but so that you can provide for other people this experience of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now that might be what he's asking you to do. Whatever it is, I want to challenge you this next week to experience a Deo Honuma moment. I want you to be available to God, to be led by him, to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. 
It might be as simple as, hey, I need to give a word of encouragement to one of my coworkers. I need to do this for someone. Uh, I had a lady in my car, and as most of you know, I drive people back and forth to their medical appointments. And I had a lady in my car the other day, and, and she was just kind of down, and we got to talking. And by the time she got out of the car, she said, Mike, I want you to know something. You're the best. So I married her. And no, I didn't. I'm already married happily, happily. And so, so, but you know, you just a little word of encouragement, lift somebody up, you know, might be what God's drawing you to do. Okay. So the spirit's prompting. When you hear the spirit's prompting, don't deny it, pursue it. Okay. Pursue it. Okay. Number two. Now, Paul talks about this thing that I call certain uncertainty. There's certain uncertainty. You're not going to know everything, like I've already said. In fact, the second part of verse 22, he says this, I am going to Jerusalem, and guess what? He doesn't know what will happen to him there. He doesn't know. He doesn't know the details. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He says, I know I'm going there, but I don't know the details. Remember when Abraham was walking around in Ur of the Chaldees? Anybody remember that? Back when we were kids? Uh, but, but Abraham was walking around Ur of the Chaldees, and God whispered to him a little message, and he says, go west, young man, go west. And he says, oh, yeah. He says, I want you to go to this new land. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know what it was going to be. But he followed God. And you know what that, that was credited to him as? His obedience was credited to him as righteousness. He did the right thing under the right circumstances, followed God, and he didn't quite know where he was going, nor did he know what it was going to do when he got there. Now, many of us, you know, we would love to go on the journey if we knew what the destination was, right? Now, how many of you go on vacation and just say, you know, I'm going to get in the car and start driving? Anybody do that? You know, I've often thought, that, that would be a fun experience. Just get in the car. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. But let's just go somewhere. And at the same time, be really open to the sensitivity of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You know, where would God lead me? Where would God want me to stop? Where would God want me to say to this waitress here? What would God want me to do here? And just follow that and just see what would happen. I believe it would be very valuable for us as we saw our children grow up that when they got to be like graduating from high school, if, when they graduated from high school, would say, okay, we want you to take this next summer and we're going to give you a hundred bucks for the summer. And I want you to take this hundred bucks and I want you to go out. I mean, we're going to load your backpack and you're going to, it's going to go from here to wherever. Just set a destination. You're going to go from here to pick a destination. Anybody? Where would you like to go in the summer? Where? Yosemite. Okay. Here's your backpack. Here's your hundred bucks. I want you to go to Yosemite and I want you to come back. You got a hundred bucks on your backpack. Let's see how God will provide for you. You might want to knock on a door of a church and say, hey, I'm traveling. Here's what I'm doing. I might need, you know, a little assistance. Could I sleep in your whatever tonight and blah, blah. And they say, oh no, come to my house. You know, and uh, the experience a kid would learn through the summer, maybe a month or whatever, you know, of doing that and depending on God will shape the rest of their lives. I think so many of us have missed that opportunity because we've always wanted to know what's the destination before we begin the journey. Because after all, it might be unsafe. After all, it might be fraught with danger. After all, we don't know. There's stuff out there we don't know. And what are we most afraid of? The things that we don't know. 
So I think it would be good for us every once in a while to experience a thing like that. Just get in your car one afternoon and say, okay, I'm going to see where God leads me. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to see where God leads me. The first person that I see, I'm going to see that as a divine appointment from God. And I'm just going to say, hi, how are you doing today? And see where it goes. Just follow that Deo Honuma moment and see what God will do. Certain uncertainty. Now, it's, we, we live kind of like, anybody see a few good men? You know, why doesn't God tell us the destination before we begin the journey? Well, it's kind of like Jack Nicholson, you know? And what did, what's Jack Nicholson most famous for saying in that movie? Okay, we want the truth. And what does he say? You can't handle the truth. Okay, and that's, that's many times for us. If God told us the destination we were going to go to in life, and he told you, oh, this bad thing's going to happen to you here, that's, oh yeah, this guy's going to betray you, oh, and down here, over here, you're going to end up losing this, and uh, how many of you would start the journey? Not many of us, not many of us. God is so smart that he knows that, and he says, I'm not going to reveal to you everything, I'm going to reveal to you this one step at a time kind of approach. I'm really glad that God didn't tell me all the details of my life. I would have never gone into the ministry. Okay? I wouldn't be here today. If God had told me all the stuff that was going to happen, I'd say, oh, no, that sounds too painful. That sounds too damaging to my family. That sounds too risky. That sounds too whatever. And I might not have gone on the journey. But God is smart, and so that's why he gives us Psalm 119.105. And what does Psalm 119.105 say? Your word is a what? A lamp to my to my path. In fact, I like the New Living Translation. Your guide is a your your guide. Your lamp is a guide to my feet and a light for my path. A guide to my feet and a light to my path. Now, have you ever seen people? Uh, in fact, in Thailand, the guys that were in the in the tunnel, you know, the little kid, the soccer team in the tunnel, that way back miles back in this tunnel. And do you think it was dark? Yes. Real dark. Do you think they had some lights? Yeah, yeah, they had some lights, but but you know what the light, the problem with the lights they had, it never showed the far end. You know what the light does in a in a tunnel like that? It shows the next couple of steps, you know, the next few yards, the next step, and really that's what Psalm one nineteen one hundred five tells us. God will be a lamp, you know, He'll give you a lamp. Okay, He's a lamp to our feet, guide to our path, and so He's going to show us the next step. That's the only thing He wants you to really know. One step at a time. One step at a time. One step at a time. And so it's kind of interesting because my philosophy of leadership has changed, you know, in recent years. I used to be, you know, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan and all that stuff, you know, build a church, do this, do that. But I have learned that, you know, we can make plans, but they might not be the best plans in the world. The best plans that we can make are, I'll follow one step at a time. I'll follow one step at a time. And it doesn't matter what the 15th step down the road is. If I take the wrong first step, I'm never going to get there. So projecting that out, you know, you might want to have some dreams. You might want to have some visions of that. But for the plan, the real plan is let's figure out what the next step is. What's the next step for our church? You know, have you ever thought about that? The next step for our church, I'm going to give it to you right here today. The next step for our church is to invite some people to be in these chairs here where there's nobody. As long as we have chairs where there's nobody, then we need to invite people to church. And you know what happens when all the chairs get filled? We need to get some more chairs. 
Okay, we need to get some more chairs. Because as long as there's people around us who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who are not followers of him, we need to make room for more. We need to make room for more. That's what Jesus came to this world to do. Jesus tells his disciples as he's getting ready to leave, go and make disciples. That's your job. Go and make some disciples, teaching them everything that I've taught you, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. And he says this. He says, and I will always be with you. You know, he says, I will be with you. And it's kind of interesting when you look at that. It, God wants to be with us. Jesus wants to be with us as we're committed to, to pursuing his goals. When we start pursuing our own goals, he doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to be with you in that. I'm going to be with you. Yeah, oh, yeah. You want to you deviate from the, what the church is doing? You want to do this? You want to do that? You know, oh, yeah, that's good. No, he doesn't say that. He says, as long as you're in pursuit of making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them, I'm with you. I'm with you. So that's our next step. We need to get some folks in the chairs that are not occupied right now so that they can become followers of Jesus Christ, so that they can then be baptized and become followers, go out and reach some more. Okay, That's our next step. Now, should we have men's ministries and women's ministries and this and that? I don't know. Maybe down the road. But our next step is vital and important. If we don't complete the next step, all of those other steps don't matter. Okay? We can talk about what we're going to do when we get to 500 people or you know, whatever. You know, 500 people, could you imagine that? Uh, but when we get to 100 people, you know, we can imagine what, you know, we need this ministry, we need that ministry. And we probably will need that. But the point is, that it doesn't matter if we don't have the people. So we need to, we need to reach out and reach the people. Okay? Oh, last week we had, a, we had a, a, a passage of scripture that I really want to remind you about. And it's not in your outline. It was Psalm 32, 8. And, and it says this. Remember, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. I will guide you, advise you, and watch over you. Guide you, advise you, watch over you. Most of the time we want God to watch over us, but the guide and the advice part, you know, we're kind of iffy on that. But when God guides us and advises us, he says, I will promise to watch over you because you're on the right path. Now, I'm not saying God won't watch over you, but I am saying that we are best cared for when we listen to God, when he guides us, when he advises us, and when he watches over us. So let us pursue his goals for our church and his goals for our personal lives, and we will, we will find ourselves in a much better position. Okay? Now, what happens to most churches our size is that we lose sight of the next step. And when we lose sight of the next step, we lose our consistency. Okay? We need to have the consistent message. We need to reach some people. We need to reach some people. We need to fill the empty chairs. We need to make sure that pe- we have lost people that are coming to church so they can hear the gospel. That's our next step. So many times we get fragmented. One person says, oh, we need to do this. One person says, we need to do that. Oh, we need to do this. We need to do this. And when we have a group this size... I'll be honest, we don't have a lot of time to pursue a lot of different things. We need to be focused. We need to be focused on what our next step is. Okay? And we don't want to be neutralized by that other stuff. Okay, number three. The third step is what I call predictable resistance. Predictable resistance. Paul says it this way in verse 23. I only know, what did he not know? He didn't know what awaited him in Jerusalem. But he says, I only know that in every city... Okay, as he's been journeying back towards Jerusalem, in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. 
So he has this general idea that there's prison and hardship in his future. Does it deter him? No, it does not. If I told you, man, you continue pursuing the course of life you're on, prison and hardship await you, what would you do? I would stop and change course, right? Now, sometimes that's necessary. You know, if you're pursuing just weird stuff, you know, and and criminal stuff, you need to stop and pursue a new direction. Anybody here doing that? Just kidding. But you need to stop doing that and you need to pursue a new direction. But if you're pursuing God's leadership in your life and you believe that he's leading you and he says, oh man, there's hardship and prison in front of you, keep going. The Apostle Paul kept going. I call it predictable resistance. You can mark it on your calendar. If you're pursuing God, you're going to meet resistance. You're going to meet resistance. Our problem is that when we meet resistance, we automatically assume that God's not in it. Surely God would make my way straight and my path right and, and it would all be coasting downhill and it's not, it's not hard and it's not, it's not something that I have to deviate from. It's just going to go real easy. No, predictable resistance. I want you to know that if you're pursuing God's leadership in your life, you have an enemy and your enemy will rise up when he is threatened. Now, if you're not experiencing any resistance right now, you might not be doing much. I'll just say that. You might not be doing much. But if you have some resistance, then that's your en- and it's from your enemy, then you know that you're probably doing something that God wants you to do. Okay? Because what does your enemy want? He wants you to be fat, dumb, and happy. Okay? He wants you to be complacent. He wants you to just stay settled down. Don't do too much. Just take it easy. Go to church if you want to, but really don't do much outside of church. You know, and, but when we start doing stuff outside of church, you'll find there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be some people and some, some forces that come against you. So therefore, don't see that as a sign that God is not in it. Many times, that's a sign that God really is in it. Now, before we go on, I want to tell you a little bit about the Apostle Paul. We haven't really fleshed him out much. Uh, when he first started his career, he was a highly educated guy. He was a student of Gamaliel, which was a, a touted rabbi in, in, of his time. And if you were educated by him, you were one of the upper crust. You were one of the smarter guys. You were one of the best, you know, had the best opportunity. And so as he studied, he was a Jew of all Jews. And all of a sudden, this fledgling Christian church cropped up. And he says, oh, no. That can't happen. That's an affront to Judaism. And they're teaching people that you don't have to, you know, that, that the law is, is the only there because to expose your need for this grace. And, oh, man, uh, what's that going to do to the temple worship? What's that going to do to our stuff? And so he became a, an opponent of Christianity. In fact, he got letters from the, from the uh, church leaders that gave him permission to travel around be introduced to other synagogues, and so that he could rout out all of the Christians. He would capture them, put them in prison. He was a mean man. And so if you're opposed to Christians today, he's your guy. You know, he might be your role model. You know, you go out and roust a bunch of them up and throw them in jail. But he was the kind of guy that was on the road one day, and he's going to Damascus, and he, and he, and he has this experience with God. And all of a sudden, this bright light, this booming sound, and all the people around him heard something but didn't quite know what it was, and he becomes blind. God says, hey, I want you to go to town here, and there's this guy that's going to come. He's going to pray over you, and you're going to see. And lo and behold, this guy comes, and now he sees, and, uh, and he has this conversion experience. And now he's saved. He wants to go out, and he wants to preach. 
You know, man, if you had a salvation experience like that, you'd want to go out and tell everybody about it. And he wants to tell everybody about it. And, and he says, man, I want to go out. I want to teach. I want to tell people about this. And, and, and it's as if God says, not this month. Oh, okay. okay. And next month comes. I want to go out. And I want to teach. Not this month. Oh, I want to go out. And, and finally he gets a chance, you know, years down the road. He gets a chance to go to Damascus. And in Damascus, he goes and teaches. And, and you know, you, you think, man, the guy's ready. He's, he's had this tremendous experience. And the people are going to be overwhelmed. They're going to be wowed. They're going to be changed. And what they wanted to do, though, was kill him. They wanted to kill him. And so he has to get out of town. And he runs around and goes here and there. It was years, years before the Apostle Paul started his missionary journeys and had a hearing in, amongst people whose lives would eventually be changed by him. It was years. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because God is more concerned about the who than he is the do. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God is more concerned about who you are, what, it, what makes you up, than he is concerned about what you do. Who before do? Remember Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha, Jesus comes, and, and uh, Martha's in the kitchen getting everything ready, you know, doing the busy work, and, and, and Martha's doing all that, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she's just listening and listening and listening, and she's being impacted by him. And Martha, her sister, is in the kitchen, and she's getting kind of upset. Because what do we believe as, as Christians? That if it's important enough for me to do, it's important enough for everybody to do. Okay, and she's in there preparing. She's a, she's a hospitality agent. And so she's in there doing all the stuff. And pretty soon she gets unhappy. And she comes out to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, you know, why don't you have Mary help me out a little bit? You know, and Jesus looks at her and what does he say? He says, Oh, Martha, Mary is doing the more important thing. I say that it's more important to be Christian than do Christian. Okay? Be Christian before you... Now, not... You shouldn't neglect doing Christian at all. But you should be before you do. And when you be, you know, I don't know how grammatically correct this is going to come out. But when you be Christian, then the doing comes far more naturally. But sometimes we do Christian and we fake the inside part. Be before you do. Who before do. And so that's why Paul travels around all these years and he gets all this experience and he gets all this rejection and pretty soon he is a well-honed machine for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who before do. Now, what did that result in? What did that do? In number four, it resulted in uncommon confidence. Uncommon confidence. When we experience the promptings of God and we understand that there's certain uncertainty about it, we take it one step at a time, and when we understand there's going to be some resistance, but I shouldn't falter because there's some resistance, then I have this uncommon confidence. I know that what I'm doing is exactly what I should be doing, no matter what the resistance is, no matter how much I know about it, I know that I am in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Notice in verse 24, the Apostle Paul comes up with a conclusion. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And here's the task. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. What did the Apostle Paul say? It doesn't matter if I get captured and put in prison. It doesn't even matter if I get killed. That does not matter. 
The only thing that matters is that I complete the task the Spirit's prompting has given me back in verse 22. That Spirit's prompting that says, I don't know what lies ahead of me exactly, but I know I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I know I'm going to face some resistance. But it does not matter even if I lose my life. It doesn't matter. Because the only thing that matters is to complete the task that God's given me. Now, for you, for me, what's the most important task? Completing the task God has given to us. Every one of us has an opportunity to be an agent of redemption. And as we share our faith and our trust and our experience in Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to administer God's grace to someone else. Now, when I think about that, you know, what, it, what was Jesus all about? He was about the one thing, one thing only, redemption. He wanted people to be made back like they were in the Garden of Eden. He wanted to make, pay the price so that mankind could be restored. I want that to become each and one of our goals in life, that we will be an agent of redemption so that we can run across somebody's life. And if it is only to invite them to church and have them experience the grace of God there, you were an agent of redemption. If it's sharing your story with someone, and through that, they are drawn to Jesus Christ and they give their life to him, so much the better. I want you to do something for me this next week. What I want you to do is I want you to kind of write out on a three-by-five card your experience with Jesus. Okay? I'm going to give you an outline here. Number one, what I want you to do is describe your life in one word Describe your life before you came to know Jesus. Okay, one, one word. What would, one, what would you say for your one word? Anybody? Okay, two words. I'll give you two. Darkness? Okay. okay. Lost? Okay. You know what my one word is? My one word is fearful. I was fearful before I knew Jesus. I think that might be kind of common in here. You know, and how fearful was I? I was so fearful that as a 10-year-old kid, I believed that my house was targeted by the Russians, the Soviet Russians, to be the next target of an atomic bomb. We lived in the flight path of Los Alamitos Naval Air Station. And at night, every night, there would be numerous planes that would fly over, and they were prop planes, so it would go over, and I would, my eyes would pop open, and I would say, is this the one? You know, it was during the Cold War, and, you know, that was common. That was front of mind for a lot of people, and it was front of mind for me as a 10-year-old. And I thought, they're going to drop the bomb on my house. Okay, whew, yeah, okay, as it would go down and, you know, get out of listening range, whew, dodge that one. But the bummer was that there was always another one coming, and I was fearful. I was fearful. And I remember as a 10-year-old kid, we went to church one night, uh, and it was a revival thing things the churches used to have. And, uh, and we went, and a guy from Oregon, his name was Orion Rhodes. He was a pastor. He came down, and it was, a, it was late in the week. Uh, and he preached about hell. <laughs> and when he preached about hell, that only exacerbated my fear. Okay? I know that I'm going to get dropped a bomb on my house. I'm going to blow up. I'm going to die. And then I, not only is that bad enough, but then I'm going to go to hell. Come on. And so I was fearful of that. And God used that fear of, the, of the, my destination, hell, to bring me to an awareness that he loved me. 
And he loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for me. And I thought, ah, oh, Jesus died on a cross for me. He loves me. And not only that, but he has, a, he has a wonderful plan for my life. He doesn't want to leave me in fear. He wants me to be lifted from that. And I remember giving my life to Christ, and I felt like I was going to float, you know. And my grandfather uh, came into my bedroom, you know, right after I gave my life to Christ and talked to me a little bit. And he, and he said, he, I, I told him, he says, well, how do you feel? I said, man, I feel like I could float. He says, you know, the reason for that is this is the first time you've ever experienced life without the weight of sin on you. I thought, wow, that's really, you know, it was almost a physical thing for me, like I, like I could float. And that's how I came to know Christ. Now, the third, and that's the second thing on your outline. How did you come to know Christ? What, was the, what were the circumstances? Okay. The third thing I want you to write down is, how was your life different? Okay, my life was liberated after that. I didn't fear anymore. I was able to sleep through the night, and when the planes came over, I thought, well, whatever. And my mom reinforced for me. Uh, a lot of times, I would, I would be fearful about something, you know, and she'd say, what's the worst thing that could happen? I said, I could die. And she would always say, that wouldn't be so bad, would it? Now, you don't want to hear that from your mom, you know, necessarily. But, but the truth of what she was saying was, was that your destiny, your destination now, is heaven. And that's not such a bad deal. But we think that the only good thing about, you know, that we have is this life on earth. That's the best thing we could have. It's not true. You know, heaven is going to be far better, far better. And so I want you to work this next week. What was your life like? Just give it a word and a little, you know, flesh it out a little bit. Here's how I was fearful or whatever it was. Here's how I came to know Christ. And here's how my life is different. I want you to be able to share that with somebody like in 60 seconds. You could do that. And if he gives you a minute or, you know, a minute and a half or five minutes, go for it. But man, be concise. Let people know your experience with Jesus Christ. Then you will know you've been an agent of redemption. Okay? I believe that God's good news and his grace are vital for everybody on this earth. That's why when I see empty seats, you know, I pray. I say, God, give us the courage to invite our friends, our neighbors, our family, so that they can be part of your kingdom. That's what we need. That's our next step.